0: You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. All right, we're in Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 17 again today. And every pastor has a a decision-making process about how fast or how slow to go, what to preach on, what to leave out. And whenever really important topics come up, we, we really want to take the time to understand what the Bible says about them. And so we, I preached through these verses last week to kind of show, hopefully show, what they meant in context. But as we look at the, the scriptures this morning, we're going to look at these verses from the perspective of worship. What do these verses teach us about worship? And because worship is so important to what we do. And so, really, we just want to, I just want to to pastor you for the next couple of weeks about worship. It's a very controversial topic, unfortunately. It's debated a lot, and it really doesn't need to be that way. So, we want to look at the scriptures and see what God says about it. So, look with me, Colossians 3, starting in verse 15. We'll read through verse 17. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Would you bow with me for prayer? Father, we bow before you and ask for your grace. As we've just sung about several times, what we are doing here today might look foolish to our world, that we're a bunch of people coming together to listen to this ancient document tell us how to live our lives. And yet, for those of us who are saved, this is the most beautiful part of our week in many ways, where we get to come and interact with the Word of God and respond in worship. And as we think about this topic of worship today, I pray that our hearts would be open to the scriptures, that we would think biblically about it, and that we would unite together around the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Our family loves to be outdoors, and we enjoy hiking. And actually, this past Monday, we went up to Devil's Head Lookout in Sedalia. Many of you have been there. If you haven't, here's the top of it. Pretty incredible. Uh, It's a very short hike, uh, 1.5 miles up emphasis being on up, <laughs> uh, 875 feet of elevation gain over a mile and a half. And the the very top of it, you can kind of see that from the picture, there are stairs and it's literally sitting like an eagle's nest on the top of the rock. And the purpose of it, it's been up there for, for decades, is to to look out over the forest and spot forest fires and call them in to the appropriate people. And the view up there is incredible. You have 100-mile views all the way around. Now, if you look east, there's really not much to see there. Thank you, Kansas. But if you look south, you can see Pikes Peak. You look north, you're looking toward Estes Park, and you can see downtown Denver just so far away. If you look west, obviously there are more and more mountains. And, and when we got up to the top of that spot and we saw views like this, we just said, wow. And it wasn't like a planned response. You know, halfway up the hike, I got my boys together and said, all right, well, guys, when we get to the top, we're going to have to say this word. It's, it's the word wow. Pronounce it with me. Wow. It just, it just came out of us, right? That's, that's what worship is. It's a response that springs out of our hearts whenever we encounter something awesome or amazing. And this isn't a forced reaction, right? It just kind of of spills out of us. If you've stood at the top of a 14er here in Colorado, or you peered over the edge of the Grand Canyon, or somewhere where you don't have light pollution, you look up in the sky and you see just the brilliant expanse of stars. You're moved deep within you, not because you're trying to be moved, but because the sight of glory and wonder moves you and and you exclaim or you're joyful or you're just kind of overwhelmed for a few minutes. God created us to be worshipers. And he didn't create us to worship the stars or to worship views like this. He created us to worship him. My former pastor, Greg Stikes, defined biblical worship as this. The response that comes out of our hearts when we encounter the true and living God. You see, our secular friends in our culture can go up to a mountain or go up to Devil's Head Lookout, and they can say, wow, as well. But as believers, our wow isn't just about the beauty. It's that, wow, our God made this. And that's the same God who cares about me. And I want to respond in praise to him. When we see God in His perfections and His beauty, or as the theologians of old called, His divine excellencies," we respond to Him, and, and that, that's worship. Every encounter with the living God results in worship. Now I probably don't need to convince you that biblical worship is very important. Uh, in the New Testament, we worship God in spirit and in truth, John 4:24. Worship is one of the key activities or the key pillars of the local church. We see this in the book of Acts. They gathered together, even daily at times, in the temple to worship. They met on the first day of the week for worship. It's a huge part of our vision moving forward. Our vision is to restart our church's life cycle by uniting around a weekly rhythm of grow and go in our Jerusalem and to help us. Move toward that vision, we articulated five steps. The first of which is gather in worship. It's what we're doing right now. That the the heartbeat of our church, the center of our rhythm, is gathering to worship our God together, not as individuals, but as a community of people. And we can worship individually. We can have times of worship where we open the Bible and respond to God. We can have family worship. But really, we have to make sure we understand what we're talking about when we say church or corporate worship. When we gather in worship, what are we doing? Now, if we look at worship from a Colossians-tinted lens, there's a distinct flavor that comes. There's a distinct contribution Colossians makes. Because biblical worship is Christ-treasuring worship. Colossians teaches us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the visible expression of who God is. In chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes that in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So if we want to know, or if we wonder what God would look like, all we have to do is look at Jesus. To behold Jesus is to behold the glory and the face of God. When we treasure Jesus, we will respond with actions and emotions that are worthy of him, that are fitting to him, that honor him as the supreme treasure of our lives. You see, all over America today, there are grown men who are painting their faces and their chests, and they're arriving at these mass places of worship hours early, and the smoke of the incense goes up as they grill outside the gates. And then they come, and they have a communal experience for three hours, chanting and cheering and booing. And they gather together to watch a bunch of men hit each other and move a pigskin back and forth up a field. It's worship. What would drive someone to take off their shirt in Green Bay in the middle of the winter and scream for three hours? Only something that is so valuable to them that they treasure it. And it's kind of convicting sometimes to look at the attendance and the energy that goes on There's no forced attendance. There's no manager of the stadium emailing ticket holders to say, why weren't you here this week? They just come because they love it and they treasure it. When we treasure Jesus, we will respond with actions and emotions that honor him because what we treasure is what we worship, and what we worship shapes our hearts. Yet for all its importance, worship is debated. It's a hot-button issue. It's one of those things that if you have Christian friends, you probably don't go and talk about because there's conflict that comes. And, that, and that's really sad. And we'll see why that's sad today. But because worship on the one hand is so important, and yet on the other hand, it's so debated and misunderstood on the other, we really just need to slow down and get a better perspective, a better understanding of what Scripture says about worship. And so, as you can tell from the title, part one means that there will be a part two. For this week and next, we're going to look at these three verses in Colossians 3 from a worship lens. And there are five principles about worship that we'll discover. We're going to cover two today. Point number two is the longest of them, so it's about equally divided. And a caveat here at the beginning, we're not going to solve all the worship problems out there. We're not going to cover every passage in the Bible that talks about worship. We're not going to fix everything that's wrong in the world as it relates to worship. What we want to do, though, is reset what we're talking about so that when we think about worship, we have a very clear idea of what the Word of God says. So let's do that together. The first principle of Christ-treasuring worship is found in verse 15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body and being thankful. So Christ's treasuring worship first requires unity. This verse commands the entire church to be gathered together in peace, to be ruled or governed by peace. The reason that peace reigns in our gatherings is because we are one unified body in Jesus who is our head. So when we gather for worship, we have to remember that we're a very diverse group of people. We have different nationalities. We have five generations. We have different backgrounds and interests all coming together because we have a single head. We are one body in Christ. Worship requires unity and actually it fosters unity too. But discord destroys worship. Have you ever been to a church that's been fighting with each other, you can feel it when they go to worship because it's not there's there's not a heart and a spirit of oneness. The word that comes to my mind to kind of capture these ideas is the word harmony. And if you're a musician, you understand what harmony is for those of us who aren't. Harmony, this is my layman's version of what harmony is, okay? Harmony is when multiple parts of music blend together in a pleasing sound. It's not all the same note. There are different notes but they're all unified, not uniform, but unified. The difference, the opposite of harmony is dissonance. When the notes are not at peace with one another and there's a clash instead of a match, dissonance is listening to my three-year-old play the piano. That's dissonance. We also call it banging. Harmony is actually what we just did with grace greater than our sin. The pianist dropped out and we sang parts. We sang in harmony. We were unified. And it's beautiful. Now, Harmony, peace, unity. Would those words describe the last 30 to 40 years of church culture when it comes to worship? What do we call the 90s and early thousands about worship? There was a conversation going on and it got so heated that we actually refer to it as worship wars. Worship wars. And frankly, The fact that we are warring over something that God has called us to unity in is a blight on the Western church. Now now that I have your attention, let's think carefully about this. Because instead of having gracious discussions with believers over genuine differences, worship has become a war zone And the battle has raged externally among churches and internally among fellow believers. And and how many churches have been torn apart by disagreements and conflict over worship? So how do we handle differences? How do we promote peace and unity when there are differences of conviction or opinion? Well, every church needs to clarify what worship is and why they worship the way they do. In large part, that's what we're trying to do the next couple weeks. Because every church has a worship style that they believe best honors the Lord. When another church worships God differently, how do we interact with them? Well, if they're preaching the gospel and they choose to worship differently, we can have a gracious discussion with them. Should we throw bombs and argue In a sinful manner? Well, no. Many churches who worship differently with a different style apply the same principles to worship that we're going to talk about today and next week. They take, we agree on principles, and they apply them differently. In fact, if you're going to go to the mission field, you'll see this so vividly that we have people of different cultures that take the same principles that we're going to talk about, and they apply it in their context. If someone applies these principles differently, if another church does this, is it our responsibility to judge them about what they do in their church? You can have a legitimate disagreement with with them. You don't have to go there, but it's before their own master that they stand or fall. One of the things that's been a, a benefit to me when I studied at Denver Seminary was that I rubbed shoulders with people of very different faith traditions very different. And you know what? There was more peace in those classrooms than I've ever experienced before, in spite of the fact that we were as different as we could be. I joke that when I would walk on campus, I automatically became the most conservative person there. And yet, those believers graciously modeled how to have discussions over disagreements. What we can't say about other believers who worship differently, and I've heard this, we can't say that they're less spiritual than us, that they're not as holy, that they don't love the Lord. In fact, some of those other believers love the Lord more passionately than I do. And I I look at them and I go, I would love to have that depth of relationship with the Lord. So we have to be very careful to make sure that we come to a clear understanding of what worship is and then communicate graciously about it. But what about inside the church? Because this is really where the rubber meets the road. Unfortunately, who is the person in the church that gets the most criticism? It's the worship pastor. Why? Most of the time, it's because someone doesn't like the songs that are sung. And we're going to see it in a few minutes That worship isn't just singing. Worship is our response to God. And and here's the question that I would ask. How are we supposed to worship God and respond to him in a manner worthy of his glory if we're so concerned about not having our favorite song sung this week? Philippians 2, 3, and 4 applies to our gathering for worship, just like it does the rest of life. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And this is different than having a biblical conviction that we stand for. If we have a biblical conviction, we have to hold fast to that. But even if we have a biblical conviction, does that give us the liberty to be a jerk about it, to be sinful about it? No. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid of someone else's biblical conviction. That's what they have come to before the Lord. If it's a preference that we're talking about, we should hold our preferences loosely and be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the betterment of of others so we need to reset our approach to worship wars in the church are never glorifying to the god of peace especially over an activity that's meant to unite god's people together there's this really interesting incident in the gospels in mark 9 i think it is that we studied earlier this this year Where a a man is, is casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but he's not part of the disciples. And the disciples come back to Jesus and they say, Lord, he's casting out demons in your name. Should we tell him to stop it? He's not part of our group. And Jesus says, basically, leave him alone. Leave him alone. If he's worshiping me, casting out demons in my name, I'll see to him. You do what God's called you to do. I think that applies in a lot of Christian areas where we have two churches, two people that genuinely love the Lord. They're walking faithfully with him. They have a difference of of opinion. They have a difference of conviction. We have to graciously respond to that because Christ-treasuring worship requires unity. Second, Christ-treasuring worship springs out of a word-saturated life. This is verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Christ's treasuring worship springs out of a word-saturated life. Now, when we look at this verse, most of us are drawn to the singing mention. And what do hymns mean? And what does this mean? But, But we ignore the fact that if you have five lines of text on the screen, singing is in the fourth line. So let's not miss what Paul is saying here. First, greater acceptance of God's word leads to greater worship. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word richly points to the abundance, the extent to which the word takes up residence in your heart. It has access to every room in your soul. That we're not, we're not keeping God and keeping the word of Christ, keeping the preeminence of Christ shoved into a corner. When God's word dwells abundantly in you, the natural result is worship. Why? Well, remember, what is worship? Worship is our heart's response when we encounter the true and living God. Where do we encounter the true and living God most clearly? In Scripture, right? We can see his handiwork in creation. We can read about it in history, but the clearest expression of Of the character and the glory of God is found in the Word of God. Scripture reveals the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So, to worship God with greater and deeper affections, the Word has to lodge more deeply in our hearts. Worship isn't something we just get up and do and check it off our list and walk away, it's a response, and it's hard to respond if the Word isn't deep in our hearts. And that's why the Christian life is this process of growth and glory where we, we, we dig into the word and we grow and we respond and then we dig more and there's, there's this beautiful synergy of, of, of growth that's taking place. Word-saturated believers are worshipful believers. But second here, there, we see that worship is guided by the word of God. Worship is guided by the word of God. And now there are two approaches to worship that 500 years ago the reformers were debating, okay? It's between the regulative and the normative principles. You say, those are big words. Yes, and and it's important that you know them. So what's the regulative principle? It's on the screen. Corporate worship is to be founded on the specific directions of scripture. If there's no biblical support for something, then we don't do it. The normative principle, you can probably guess, takes the other approach. Anything not expressly forbidden by Scripture is permissible in corporate worship. So like the Eastern Orthodox Church would talk about using icons or pictures of paintings to help the worshiper visualize. They would use the normative principle. That's not expressly forbidden in Scripture. Now, I think there's a way that you can get there by applying the Ten Commandments. But it's not commanded It's not modeled by the early church as to how we worship. You don't see the early church going to Jerusalem's art gallery in the first century and worshiping there. So we practice the regulative principle. Everything we do in worship is based on the scriptures. And these elements that we practice are taught in the epistles and modeled by the early church. Well, what are they? They are, first and foremost, the preaching and teaching of the word of God. The Word of God takes a central role in our worship. We begin with what? What was the first thing we did to begin worship today? We all stood and read a call to worship. That call to worship came from the Bible. In a few moments after our concluding song, Pastor Jerry is going to read a benediction, which is from the Word of God. From beginning to end, the Word of God is central in our worship service. 2 Timothy 4.2 simply says, preach the word. It's the word of grace that builds up hearers. But we also read the word. That's why we're reading through Genesis. You may have thought, well, why did we pick this random book of Genesis, especially all these weird names? Addison did a good job with those, by the way. Why do we do that? Well, the 1 Timothy 4.13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So Paul is elevating the reading of the Scriptures to the same level as preaching and teaching. So we read the Word of God. The third thing that we do is prayer. Prayers should be offered. First Timothy two one. Therefore, I exert, exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. We also sing. Our passage today, Colossians three, talks about this. We also observe the ordinances: baptism and the Lord's supper. Last week we saw someone be baptized. This week we're going to observe communion, the Lord's table. That's what we do when we come to corporate worship. So worship is guided by the word of God. Now here's where there might be some pushback. All believers participate in worship, specifically in singing. And before you shut your mind off and say, yeah, no, you lost me now, let's look at the text. Verse 16 says, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another how do we teach and admonish? In psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing them with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So who participates in this worship? The who is one another. We all do it. All believers participate in worship. And how, according to this verse, do they participate in worship? By singing to one another. Singing to one isn't about the quality of my voice. It's about giving God worship from my heart. It saddens me to see many people that come to our services and just stand there or just sit, kind of look around. Oh, hey, there's a light bulb out over there but while the rest of us are singing. It doesn't matter that your voice isn't concert quality. Mine isn't either. I think that's why no one sits in front of me. But what are we doing when we sing? We're singing with gratitude in our hearts to the Lord. God is honored when we give him glory regardless of the quality of voice that we have. In fact, one old hymn writer wrote, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. That's a really strong statement. That he's implying that if you're not singing, you don't know God. And I don't know if I'd go that far, but I would say, that if you're not singing, you're not engaging. Then there is something wrong. If Jesus is your greatest treasure and it's bubbling up from within you, then there's going to be some outflow. A lack of singing means that there's a lack of spiritual health, and you could, you could probably say, well, no, no, not in every circumstance. That may be true, but but that's a general principle, and that may be hard for us to hear. But you know what? One of the most beautiful experiences that we could have is when believers who are dwelling together in unity sing together. Because there are how many of us in the room who are called to preach? Maybe five or six of us. How many of us are called to sing to one another? However many of us there are in the room. I've been to small churches that, that could fit into our fireside chapel, maybe even smaller, and the singing was incredible. Because it was a measure of, of the, the affection that they had in their hearts for the Lord. The greatest experience of singing to date that I've been a part of is going to the Shepherds Conference in Southern California where you have 3,000 pastors in an auditorium belting out their song, these songs to the Lord. If you've ever heard pastors sing, it's not, uh, it's not beautiful in the sense of technically fine, but it's beautiful in the sense of it is glorifying to God. And whenever we read in Revelation about heaven, what is going on in the throne room of God? You guessed it, singing. There's something incredible that happens when we sing together. And for you, that may be a step of faith. It may be, I don't know if I can do that. I would encourage you to step out on faith and participate in congregational singing. Now, as an aside, There's been a church policy in the past where only those who are in the choir are allowed to participate in the worship service, and and that's just not the case. If you have a gift of music, we want you to exercise it for the building up of the body. But just like some have the gift of evangelism, and yet all of us are called to evangelize, we can't say, Well, I don't have the gift of music, so I don't have to do it. We all sing together. Well, why? What does our singing do? Our singing actually teaches and admonishes one another. So, so we sing with gratitude in our hearts to the Lord. That's, a, that's the vertical component of worship in our singing. But singing then has also a horizontal component. That's why it's not about the quality of my voice. It's, it's about my heart to the Lord and my ministry to other people. Let's think about that. The songs we sing teach us true doctrine. They keep us on the path of righteousness. So when you are singing, you are actually helping to teach the word of God. That's why every believer participates in singing. When you sing, you are affirming the truths of the song, not just between you and God, but with others and even to others. To sing in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. It's not just to say, Yes, Lord, that's true. I've come to Christ by faith. It's to remind other believers around us that our hope is in Christ and in Him alone. It's to, to be a testimony to the unbelievers in our midst that we're not a bunch of people here for nice things. We are here because we love Jesus and our faith is found in Him. To sing, Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Is yes, to encourage my heart to wait on the Lord. But it's also to encourage the believer down the row from you who's just had a, a medical diagnosis that's very troubling. It's to encourage them to be fixed and wait on the Lord. To sing, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace is to remind me and the people around me that, that we're sinners and we're prone to wander and yes, we feel it. And we need the Spirit of God to bring us into alignment week after week with the Word of God. And worship becomes more powerful and more meaningful when we recognize that our worship instructs and encourages others. That's why Dane Ortland, the author of Gentle and Lowly, said this, what a church sings tells you what they believe, but how a church sings it tells you if they really believe it. That's really convicting because we can pick the most doctrinally faithful songs, but if we don't sing, is it because we disagree? Is it because we don't understand that, that, that there's ministry taking place? How we sing tells you if we really believe it you say, no, no, that's not really true. I I could give you example after example of how it is. We, Kate and I met at the Wilds in North Carolina. I did uh, five summers as a counselor there. And and, and by the end of my time as a counselor, you could sense and and you could gauge the singing on Monday night, and it was markedly different on Friday night. And everything in the week is going against that. They're way more run down on Friday. All the campers have lost their voices. The counselors didn't have voices to begin with. So, why on the night that they're most fresh are they singing the worst? And the the night that they should be singing the worst, they're singing the best. Why? Because they've gotten right with God. And out of the, the outflow of their heart, they're singing and they believe these truths. Do we believe what we're singing? Last point for today, and then we'll transition to the Lord's table. It's going to be a few minutes, but this is our final consideration. Corporate worship includes singing. You're probably thinking, okay, that's a little redundant. You just said that. Yes, but there's a couple of points here that we want to clarify. Worship includes singing, but it's not limited to singing. And this is something that's misunderstood. It's just one part of corporate worship. We just talked about what else is going on with that. The preaching and teaching of the word, the reading of scripture, prayer, the the ordinances. And yet, if you listen to the way Christians talk about, and I've been guilty of this in the past, they talk about going to a conference to hear someone do the worship. Or I'm just going to go, I really liked the worship today at the church. Well, what are we referring to? We're referring to the singing but that's not what worship is. That's a component of it, but not the entirety of it. Next week, one of the points is talking about how worship extends beyond what we do here to every part of life. So there's a clarification that we make. We made here. It includes singing, but it's not limited to. Now, that being said, this verse does address our singing. It's one of two verses in the New Testament that talks about specifically what we sing. Ephesians 5:18 gives and 19 gives the other one. Maybe it's Ephesians 5:23. Don't quote me on that. It's later in, in Ephesians five. Paul lists three terms about what to sing, and, and it's difficult to splice this up. There, there's some debate about what exactly they mean, but here's what they seem to refer to. You have psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. So psalms refer to inspired scripture set to music, like. The Old Testament Psalms, that was the hymn book of the early church, was the Psalms. In fact, there's a movement today to sing the Psalms again, and it's a really good movement. Second is hymns. Hymns are songs of praise to God, and they're, they're generally doctrinal in nature, so they're more teaching truth that is timeless, and so they, they generally stand the test of time. Spiritual songs, it seems, are differentiated from hymns by by referring to current expressions of the Christian faith. So if hymns are more of the, the, we sing these for centuries, you know, we're still singing some of the hymns Martin Luther wrote 500 years ago. Spiritual songs are songs that the Spirit gives that we sing today that encourage us, but eventually will pass on from time. Fanny Crosby wrote, How many hymns? How many songs? Hundreds. How many do we sing today? Maybe a dozen. Is that a bad thing? No. She was used of God in her generation and succeeding generations to bless people through her writing. Each generation has to pass on the faith to the next. And so as the Spirit is moving and leading, there will be new expressions of songs that are given for the church today. Well, how do, we, how do we select what songs to sing? Well, do you know how many songs there are out there that are loosely labeled Christian songs? So we use a copyright called CCLI, and that's how we pro- project the words on the screen. Their database boasts over 100,000 Christian songs. And yeah, sure, we could probably debate. Some of them aren't really Christian. A hundred thousand songs. In the life of a church, Jerry and I have talked about this several times, a church, a local church can probably learn really well about 100 a hundred songs. A church that sings a lot, round up, 150 songs. So if you have a hundred thousand out there and a hundred, a hundred fifty that you can, you can honestly learn and sing in a corporate gathering, because we're, we're gathering for unity, Right? We're not just singing something that, that we picked out off the street. We're singing for unity to express our faith to God and to one another. How do we pick what songs to sing in worship? Let me share with you some principles of song selection. First of all, we pick songs that are biblically true and doctrinally sound. And that, hopefully that's pretty obvious. <laughs> we don't want to sing falsehoods uh, and sing th- trues, or sing things that are not true. Now, inside each hymn, oftentimes the writer of the hymn has a progression from one stanza to another that teaches truth. And so one of the reasons we sing all four stanzas or all the stanzas of a song, unless there's, you know, eight or something like that, we generally try to sing all the stanzas because there's a a theme and a truth that's being communicated even from one stanza to the next. So our first principle is biblically true, doctrinally sound. Second is distinctly Christian and Trinitarian. We want to sing songs that aren't just true, but are distinctly Christian. If, if, the, if, if Muslim people can sing the song with us, it's probably not a good song for us to sing in worship. We want to sing songs that are Christian. Uh, let me give you an example. A few years ago, the PCUSA, this is the liberal mainline denomination in uh, Presbyterian Church of the USA. They wanted to change the lyrics to In Christ Alone that I quoted earlier. The line that they wanted to change read this way, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they wanted to change it to, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And the authors refused to change it. And so the committee said, well, it's too bad, you know, we can't put that in our hymnal now. Is it true that the love of God was magnified on the cross? Yes, Romans 5, very clear. But their point in not changing it is that the death of Christ was a propitiation that satisfied God's wrath, and they weren't gonna compromise that vital gospel principle to a liberal church, just to have it included. So we're singing songs that are distinctly Christian, and distinctly Christian also means that our songs will be trinitarian. That doesn't mean that every song has to have a reference to Father, Son and Spirit. It does mean that every song should fit within the parameters of the Bible's teaching on the Trinity. We'll get more into the into trinitarian matters next week. Third is congregationally focused and unifying. And I want to make sure that we understand this connection. This goes right back to teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Our singing is not just a recitation of truth or a formality that we do because we've always done it that way, but a ministry to one another. Again, the goal of our singing isn't to feature performers with great talent. We choose songs that the entire congregation can unite their voices in singing together to enhance the horizontal ministry of the song. Therefore, we want our songs to be musically singable, but also easy to understand for everyone as a whole. And that's the challenge with some of the older hymns. Some of the way that they're written are a little bit hard to understand. But we feel the ones that we select are still so helpful that we can use them. That also means that there's a bunch of songs out there that are great Christian songs that you can listen to that we're just never going to do in a worship service because they're hard for a congregation to sing. We want the whole congregation participating. And then, fourth, we want songs that are excellent and appropriate. And some songs are just poorly written, some songs are crass or bass, so we want excellent ones. But we also want appropriate ones. And this requires discernment. This is a judgment call. And, and if you have a legitimate disagreement about, well, we should use this one, well, we just, first of all, logistically can't use every good song that's out there. But as the shepherds under Christ, we're trying to choose the songs that are best going to minister to our body. And, and that, that requires discernment. And it might not be the right situation for something. There may be cultural factors that would not be wise to use the song. But we don't don't just go and open our hymnal and put our finger down and say, we're going to sing this today. We pray over it. We have one of the men on our staff, Pastor Jerry, who who prepares for this because it's so important. And the way that I like to think of Christian music is, is like a wide river, like the Mississippi. If you've ever driven across the Mississippi, it feels like it's going on forever. Personally, I hate bridges. I always get this feeling like they're going to collapse and I'm going to be on YouTube, you know, drowning to my death. It's irrational, I know, okay? But the Mississippi's huge, and you can't hold your breath over it because you'd pass out, especially if you're driving. I like to think of Christian music as a river like this, that there's a, a wide variety of songs to choose from. And when we exercise these four principles, we can narrow down the river to what we would call acceptable for public worship. And within that stream of what is acceptable, we can only use a small segment of songs. So we try to choose what's best. Our goal as pastors is to select songs that unite our congregation and minister to the body. The use of a song should be filtered through these principles and not simply traditionalist preferences or contemporary fads. Every song should be filtered through this grid. That means that older songs that don't meet these criteria should be generally and gradually phased out of public worship, while newer songs that do qualify should be included. We've been doing that for a decade now. And this is always where the debate is. And I think understanding the difference between hymns and spiritual songs helps us again here. Because hymns have a doctrinal focus, they stand the test of time. Spiritual songs are good and helpful. I've written a couple. They didn't go anywhere, but I've written a couple. But but these spiritual songs minister to different generations differently, so hear me out and then we'll conclude. What may seem outdated to a younger believer may be an older generation spiritual song that has been their lifelong companion. And what older believers may say is new and different, resonates deeply with younger believers. And as we saw in verse 15, worship requires unity. How do we unite in worship and have peace? And the answer is that we, we follow Jesus by sacrificing our preferences to serve others. That means both generations defer to one another instead of clamoring for the song or the era of song that I prefer. And when we remember to teach and admonish one another in our singing, this deference, I think, becomes easier because the focus of worship isn't on me. It's on God and those around me. Even in corporate worship, the focus is not inward but outward. It may surprise you to know that, that there are some songs that we sing that I don't get excited about. I just look at that and go, okay, not my favorite. But, and I'm not perfect with this, but I try to sing them from my heart because I know that there are many of you in the room who are ministered to by that song. In fact, if I could do my own choice in a vacuum, I might never pick that one. But we have a a group of people here who are diverse and who are unified. And there may be some songs that you don't necessarily like, but they fit this criteria, and you see down the row from you or across that it's ministering to someone else, it's a biblical motive to sing it for them. And that's what I'm asking you as a congregation. If we're going to reset our our life cycle and move forward for the next generation, we have to unite in worship. Because Christ-treasuring worship requires unity and springs out of a word-saturated life. Next week, we'll come back for principles three through five, but let's pray together. Father in heaven, this matter of worship is so important because it's praising you and honoring you, and yet we understand that we're so limited in our perspective. We're so uh, fallible to our own biases. And so we pray for grace, that you would help us to die to ourselves and our preferences, to come together, to minister to one another, by what we sing, and that over time our church would have a vibrant song service, that we would come together with joy and unity to praise you, yes, but to minister to others who need it. Because at some point we will all need it. So give us grace to consider these things from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoy this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.